Father, we thank you for this day of rest, this day of worship, this day of fellowship with you and with one another. Strengthen us in our journey. Uh, We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So last week I began uh, sort of a two-part series. I didn't intend for it to be two parts. Hopefully uh, it will not be a three-part series. Uh, But I began a two-part series on textual criticism and specifically how it relates to what we're covering in Exodus. So just to recap, textual criticism is how we have the Bible. It's examining the texts and paying careful attention to what is inspired and what is not inspired. Around the mid to late 1700s, textual criticism began to get off the rails a bit. And the way that it got off the rails was scholars were trying to find what words, what language was absolutely original to an author, and what was later additions. Uh, and so a lot of the stuff that you hear in, in scholarly, modern scholarly circles, uh, the idea that Paul is the one who basically invented ecclesiology. Uh, aside from Paul, it's just Jesus and his ethical teaching And when Paul comes along, he develops the church structure. Uh, And so he institutionalizes this religion. All of those kinds of things are things that come out of more modern textual criticism. Uh, And we've shifted from, in, in in the larger scope, we've shifted from modernism to post modernism. Because the goal of modernism is to find what that original kernel of truth is. And so by cutting away everything else. So how many of you are familiar with the Jefferson Bible? Right? So what is the Jefferson Bible famous for? He tore out all the the supernatural elements. He, He literally took a knife and cut out the supernatural elements. Uh... I was talking to somebody the other day that uh, stayed at a bed and breakfast. Anyway, they had an original Jefferson Bible there, and he picked it up and read the Gospels, and the Gospel ends with the death and burial of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's, that's the end of the, of, the new, of, of the Gospels in the Jefferson Bible. Um, because what Jefferson is trying to do, was trying to do, was get to what is actually true what is actually original. Uh, And he's convinced that the whole supernatural component is added later, uh, that, that, you know, this was an attempt to take an ethical teacher, the most pure ethical teacher that we have ever known, and turn him into a god. Uh, And so that was against what Jefferson believed, and so he he trims out the supernatural elements of, of the Bible in order to get down to what he argued is exactly what Jesus said and who Jesus was.
Sure, and I wouldn't. I would a. I wouldn't want to uh, state authoritatively where he his soul is today. But b. Jefferson was very anti-Christian. <laughs> he was very. The difference, anyway, yeah, let's get back to, <laughs> so, so the point is, the point is that really from, from, you know, Luther, uh, the, the Reformation on to modern, the end of the modern critical theory, the goal is to find what is original and therefore True. So, so that's the purpose. And that's why we have the Bible that we have. That, that's the reason that the Apocrypha is not in your Bible. That's the reason that Luther said that James should not be in the Bible. Uh, it, it's the examination to find out what is original and what is true. And that produces the Bible that we've got. But that examination continues on once we've got the Bible. It continues beginning in the late 1700s, I'd say about 1780s, and really going through the 1970s. Uh, and, and so up through the 1970s, that's the goal of, of textual criticism, is to answer this question, what is original and what is true? Postmodernism comes in, and says, that nothing is objectively true. There, there is no objective truth in a, in a postmodern context. And so that dominates the scholarship from the 1970s on through the current day is this postmodern approach. Now, the advantage of the postmodern approach is because we're trying to find out what is original and what is true, we end up removing anything that we decide is not original, anything that we decide is not true. We remove it. With a postmodern perspective, when they start with nothing is objectively true, there is no objective truth, then their goal is simply to note uh, to note these linguistic patterns or structural. That's all they're concerned about. The only thing that a postmodern critical, uh, text critical, uh, scholar is worried about is in the text that we've got in front of us. So, so the Bible has no more value than Shakespeare. Uh, the Bible has no more value than the Quran. Uh, these are all expressions of human aspiration. Over the centuries, they, they've been collected, sayings have been all put together, we've produced these documents, and now we're coming in to say, let's look at the documents, let's look at the patterns uh, that we see in the documents. 
So, so I think postmodernism is contributing a lot to current modern study and current modern theology. So I want to spend some time today to, to show what I'm talking about with our Exodus thing and some couple of, I think, very practical uh, applications of that. So, so I can benefit from the scholarship of people who are complete unbelievers. Uh, they, they don't see this as God's inspired word at all. But they're seeing these, these uh, patterns. They're seeing these, these things in this text uh, that I think can really bring it to life uh, for us. And so with that in mind, I want to kind of drill down just a little bit deeper than I did last time on this structure that I'm finding in the book, well, not just Exodus, but beginning in Exodus and going through Numbers chapter 9. And I want to just mention a couple of things that I think are really powerful uh, in this in this structure. So our first starting point is the people that are receiving this, the original audience. That's where we have to begin if we're going to truly understand a text, is what was the purpose of this text for the original audience? What were they supposed to get out of it? And then, what can we get out of it? Uh, but what was the original audience supposed to get out of this text? And part of that original audience, I think, is their context. Uh, the, the context of that original audience. So, uh, you think of, of Paul and what he writes in 1 Corinthians. He gives a lot of detailed, you should do this, you should not do that. You should not sue each other. You should go to uh, the church courts, not to the magistrate. You should not sleep with prostitutes. You are sharing uh, your, yourself with them uh, when, you're, when you're sleeping with a prostitute. There are a lot of, you should do this, you should not do that. Now, why does Paul choose to emphasize that in 1 Corinthians? Because the church in Corinth is a hot mess. And Paul is addressing them in their context. Now, does that mean that since we're not in the Corinthian context... We don't have to, and, and I'll say this, uh, so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I think it is, uh, I'm sure it is, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is the issue of head coverings. Uh, Paul states very clearly that a man is to pray with his head uncovered, and a woman is to pray with her head covered. He states that very clearly. Now, the argument today and this is among conservative Christians, most, uh, the vast majority, I think, of conservative Christians do not believe that head coverings is a continuing command uh, for women in the church. And so most people today will say, well, you've got to look at the context. The context of 1 Corinthians is a different context 
or, or at least that issue in 1 Corinthians is a different context than the one we're living in today. Uh, and so because we are living in a different setting and a different historic context, that specific issue of head coverings doesn't necessarily, there's a, there's a principle behind it, but there's not a one-to-one application behind it. And so most conservative Christians would say the context is, is it shapes how we understand uh, that passage on head coverings. Going on, how many of you are familiar with churches that ordain women as deacons? Okay, so I think all of us, I think most of us at least, are familiar with churches that ordain women as deacons. And it, Paul is, is pretty staunch in saying the deacon must be the husband of one wife. And so the argument then is, well, the context. Uh, Paul is speaking, and, and uh, John Stott, I think, gives the, the best conservative argument for women in office. Uh, and, and he argues from the standpoint of we're in a different context. Uh, this is not an eternal principle that Paul is setting out. He's speaking to the context uh, that's there. And, and that command is, is unique to that time and place. Meaning if I, how to say it, um, if I say to my son, I'm going to smack you upside the head. If we are joking around and we're goofing off and we're you know, out in the backyard throwing a football and he keeps throwing it over my head just for fun, I say, dude, straighten up. I'm going to smack you upside the head. Or my son has just smarted off to my wife. He has completely disrespected her. He has treated her in a, in a, in a wrong manner. And I step in and I say, son, I'm going to smack you upside the head. The context makes that completely different. The, the context of playing makes it a joking statement. The context of confrontation and discipline and seriousness makes it, you need to straighten up. <laughs> Cut this stuff out now, or I'm going to smack you upside the head. Uh, the, the context is conveys the meaning. Uh, the, the meaning is tied to the context. Uh, and so that, that's what I mean by the context is we, we need to understand where these people are, where they're coming from, and, and what this meant to them originally. And so my point in this is the context for this original audience, the context is that they are all Count at Sinai. That's where the original audience is. They're, they're camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. And that camp begins in Exodus 18. That's where they reach Mount Sinai. And it continues through Numbers 9. So the rest of the book of Exodus 
all of the book of Leviticus and all the way up to Numbers chapter 9. Numbers chapter 9, I think it's verse 11, it's 10 or 11, is, is when the children of Israel leave Sinai. So there's this thing, this context, that covers this entire section of Scripture. There's something that unites this entire section of Scripture. They're camped in one spot. All of these things are being said to them in that one spot. And so, how can we examine this entire thing to to better understand what's going on? And so, that's where I, I started last week with these seven cycles. You've got Exodus 18 to 20, and I think it's verse 19, which is the marriage. And right after that, you have a theophany, an appearance of God. And it's thick darkness. And then you have that second section that begins in Exodus 20... And I think it's verse 20. Yep. And it goes through Exodus 24. And this is the judicial. How the children of Israel are to interact with one another. How they're to treat one another. How they're to treat the stranger in the midst. And you've got another appearance of God. which is in chapter uh, 20, verses 9 and 10, which is the feet. And then you've got a third, which is this tabernacle section, which we've been going over the past few weeks. We'll be finishing up this morning, Lord willing. And that's chapters... 35 to 39, and you've got a theophany, which is the glory. And you'll notice there's a progression in the theophanies. Our understanding of God grows as we go through these sections. Our our seeing God, never face to face, but but it's always, I mean, we start with darkness, then we move to his feet, then we move to his glory. We're, We're seeing an expansion of our understanding of God in this in this structure. So the fourth. Do what now? Oh, I did, didn't I? I am so sorry. Thank you for catching that. Yeah, that's number four. <laughs> Let's just make this easy by swapping those. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, from chapter 24, uh, chapters... 25 to 31. That's what we're finishing up today, aren't we? 
Is that right? Yeah, four. Uh, the worship laws. That's 25 to 31. And so these worship laws, they end with this interesting thing. The theophany that we would expect if this pattern is, is repeating. The theophany, thick darkness, feet of God, we should expect some further revelation of who God is, right? But that's not what we get. We get instead, instead, uh, Nadab and Abihu in chapter 32. And then we get our theophany in chapter 33, which is where Moses says to God, I want to see your face. God says, no man can see my face and live. <clears throat> but if you'll stand in the cleft of the rock, I'll cover you with my hand. I will pass before you and you will see my back. So even with seeing the back, this is still an unfolding. But this dissonant note here in chapter 32, this, 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 this note kind of in this, in this whole glorious opening up and revealing of who God is. You know, it's like a symphony where all of a sudden in the middle of a symphony, somebody plays a tuba off key. <laughs> You're hearing some beautiful Brahms lullaby or something, and suddenly in the middle of Brahms lullaby, you hear, and that's what this is. As we're, as we're going through this beautiful structure, this beautiful unfolding of who God is, we get this right in the middle of it. And, and so I'll, I'll circle back around to that, why I think that's there, what, what I think we're, we're to take from that. But it's certainly there in the structure. Uh, the, the structure is simply what is. How we interpret that structure is, is where we get into our job. Uh, so anyway, so marriage, judicial, worship, and then tabernacle. Is that right? Marriage, judicial, worship, tabernacle. Yes. Marriage, judicial, worship, tabernacle. And then we've got three more. Three more sections. With this, we've... Uh, Yeah, at the end of the tabernacle, so this, because I swapped this around, this is chapter 40, is where the glory of God enters into the tabernacle. That's there in number four, uh, section 4. The glory of God settles over the tabernacle, uh, and that's in chapter 40. And so we've got this back and forth, back and forth, uh, as we, as we are proceeding, from thick darkness, the feet of God, the back of God, the glory of God. So, so we're seeing more of God as we progress through the book of Exodus. Then we pick up in the book of Leviticus, and this pattern continues, and we should expect it to continue because the context tells us 
There ought to be something that unites this entire section from Exodus 18 to Numbers chapter 9. There, this is, this is a context for the children of Israel. So is there something literary, literature, literarily, that, that connects Exodus 18, Numbers 9, and everything in between? And that's where I'm coming, I'm, I'm trying to put together this structure. Uh, and, and this is a, uh, for me at least, for me at least, this is, uh, some very new stuff, uh, that, that I'm, I'm seeing in the text. There are very few actual new ideas, uh, but I do think that this, this structure I'm finding very helpful, and I think it answers some questions, uh, that I'll get to here in just a second. <laughs> In a very quick second. Uh, So we're moving from number four on to number five. So see, I put Nadab and Abihu in at chapter 32. That's not 32. Golden calf. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Golden calf. There we go. Same point. Dissonant note. Uh, in, in the midst of this unfolding of redemption, in the midst of unfolding of God's plan, you've got this dissonant note of the golden calf. Idolatry right in the middle of this beautiful thing that God is doing. And then number five is the atonement. And that's in... At this point, we're in the book of Leviticus, and that's chapters 1 through 10. And then you've got the theophany, which again is sort of an anti-theophany, which is in chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu. Offering strange fire. Uh, And then you've got the sixth section are laws regarding purity, and that's Leviticus chapters 11 through 18. And the seventh section is holiness, laws regarding holiness. And that's Leviticus chapter 19 through Numbers chapter 9. <clears throat> and the theophany there at the end of that is the cloud and the fire settling and then lifting up again. So, so you've got this progression of, of the awareness of God, the, the, the progression of the knowledge of God. In between the purity and the holiness section, I really haven't, I, this, this is all, this is stuff I'm working on. And, and I haven't figured out why there's not a clear theophany in there, because these other patterns are so clear. There, there's just this clear pattern here. But in between here, the, the pattern breaks a little bit in that there's not a theophany. Uh, and so I don't have a final answer as to why that is. This is, this is a work in progress for me. And I'm trying to figure that out. So here's just two ways in which I think this is applicable. The first is... Um, you've heard in this fourth section, this is what we've been 
in over the past few weeks in the, in the sermons. In the fourth section, I've been emphasizing that the tabernacle is a recreation of Eden. This is Eden uh, that, that, is, that is being recreated. This place of perfect harmony, perfect communion. We no longer have the angel barring the, the way, closing the gate. We now have the gate opened into the tabernacle. But you must come through blood. Uh, so everything that God said was you know, the punishment for Adam and Eve and kicking them out of Eden, uh, we're now making a way for Adam and Eve to come back into Eden, into this place of perfect harmony with God. Uh, and, and so uh, we'll, we'll pick this up a little bit in the sermon today because we're looking at chapter 39. But in this Garden of Eden section, there are seven times that the creation formula is repeated. If you remember Genesis 1.1, and God said, let us. And seven times in this tabernacle section, you've got that phrase, and God said to Moses, do this, and, or say, say this. So it's a, it's a seven section. <laughs> it's a seven times of the repeating of the creation formula. Uh, that's here in this tabernacle section, which I think kind of emphasizes the Garden of Eden connection. Uh, and, and so that's, that's one way that I think we can, we can see some of this, this cool stuff, uh, that's coming out here. Another way is the Christian church, I think, has just been divided ever since we started asking these questions. What is the relationship of the law to the gospel? Uh, is are these two separate things. If you have ever seen pictures of Anglican ministers, uh, they have a weird little half necktie thing that divides in the middle. It's a white thing, and, and it comes down at an angle, like 45-degree angle on either side. That white thing is supposed to represent the law and the gospel. These are two separate things, and yet they're here together with us. Um, Luther had a much stronger division between the law and the gospel. He, he said the law is works, it's death. The gospel is grace and life. American evangelicalism is largely dispensationalist, and I grew up on Schofield's reference Bible, uh, and up in up until the 1960s when Charles Ryrie came along uh, and, and modified dispensationalism uh, from, from the beginning of, of the movement in the late 1800s, really through the 1960s, uh, the law was a way of testing. Can you obey the law and be right with God? And the answer, obviously, is no. They couldn't do it. They failed. And so now we have grace. Uh, and, and so there is a really sharp distinction between the law and grace, uh, in, in particularly modern evangelical and classic dispensationalism. But if we see this all together as one thing, then I think, A, the law takes a much, it's a much bigger definition. It's a much bigger definition than the Ten Commandments. 
the Sinai covenant is a lot bigger than simply Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 19. Uh, there's, there's a lot that's in here that is all of God's revelation. The second is, I think setting it in this context helps us to see, particularly in that first section, the marriage covenant, the law is given as a promise, uh, as, as, a, as a reflection of God's character. It's given as, if you want to see the face of God, look at the Ten Commandments. If you want to know who Christ is, look at the Ten Commandments. He did this perfectly, as well as the entire rest of the Sinai Covenant. Because the entire rest of the Sinai Covenant is constantly pointing us forward to Christ. The sacrificial system, all of these things. They're constantly pointing us forward to Christ. And so I think, and, and this is right up to contemporary debates within Reformed theology... The, the issue of the relationship of the law to the believer, is it a republication, and I'm using that word for those of you who, your ears twing at that, good, that's, that's what I'm meaning. Is it a republication of the covenant of works? That's the argument that has been going on today. If it's a republication of the covenant of works, you and I are not under the covenant of works, therefore the law should not be, our, our, uh, I should not be emphasizing the law. And I think that misses, okay, yes, there's a sense in which it's a republication of the covenant of works because it is what God says Eden should be. But the whole Eden principle is that you and I are brought back into Eden, that we're we're admitted back into Eden. The law is never, ever, ever given as do these ten things and you'll be right with God. It's never given that way. It's given in the context of a marriage. It's given in the context of redemption. It's given in the context of, of you know, moving through the, the entrance of the tabernacle, through the blood sacrifice, to the, the, the communion meal, to the, the, the light of, of the Garden of Eden and the candlestick and, and the, the altar of incense, the prayers going up before God's people and the mercy seat above all things. Uh, so I'm getting the watch sign. Uh, I, I, and, and so a lot of this stuff I'm just discovering. Let me, let me finish this up real quick because I'm already over. <laughs> a lot of this stuff I'm, I'm digging out. I'm, I'm pulling out some, some gems out of, out of where I've been digging. And so there's more to be said that I cannot say at this point. But the other thing that I want to note in this pattern and this is both with Exodus 32 and with uh, the Nadab and Abihu, uh, Leviticus chapter 10. With both of these things, even in this beautiful structure that is what I'm calling the Sinai Covenant. The Sinai Covenant that begins in Exodus 18, ends in Numbers 9. Even in this gorgeous, gorgeous, beautiful literary masterpiece... Sin intrudes. Sin keeps poking its finger in there. It's imperfect. And, and it's, you know, as it's being delivered, we're being shown that it can't accomplish. It's got to be a sign. It's got to point to something else because this itself doesn't do it. This itself is corrupted uh, because we keep corrupting it. Uh, we corrupt it with the golden calf. We corrupt it with the Nadab and Abihu and strange fire. And, and so 
this this thing is is broken even by sin, which then has got to point us forward as we see its imperfections to the one who is perfect. So I'm like 10 minutes over. Uh, let me go ahead and stop there. And any further discussion or any questions on this, I'm, I'm happy to take in the break. Uh, but I, I, I hope that you guys can see, and I hope this is intriguing, I hope you can uh, see some of the, the, the neat stuff that is, is coming out of this structure, and then to make application uh, for that stuff. And I think one of the obvious applications is the Christian's relationship to the law. Uh, the law is our friend. The law reflects the grace of Christ. It's only in this structure, as we see it in the context of the marriage ceremony, that we can then turn to Psalm 119 and understand how David can write an entire psalm, acrostic psalm, every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, a love poem to God's law. Uh, That's exactly what Psalm 119 is. It's David's love poem to God. And it makes sense if if we see this in the context of a marriage. David got that. Uh, and, And that's how we can get this love uh, that, that's expressed because it's coming out of this marriage uh, section. Okay, so let me close there. I'm, I'm way over, uh, and we'll go into our break. Father, as we, as we continue to be Bereans, to, to search your scriptures, to study your word, uh, Lord, would you continue to open our eyes to the glories that are there, to the, to the beauty uh, of of this wonderful, wonderful revelation of of you in your word and all uh, that it reveals in Christ's name, Amen.